0: Coming up on Dr. Kiki's Science Hour, we're talking about why humans are the way that we are with theoretical neurobiologist Mark Cengizzi. That's up next on Dr. Kiki's Science Hour.
1: Netcasts you love.
0: From people you trust.
1: This, this is Twitter. Twit. Bandwidth for Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot
0: com. This is Dr. Kiki's Science Hour with me, Dr. Kiki. Episode number 96 recorded on Thursday, May 19th, 2011. Theoretically Thinking. This episode of Dr. Kiki Science Hour is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC or Mac or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com forward slash twit. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Dr. Kiki Science Hour. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and... I hope you're ready for our hour, one hour, one topic, one expert. Get ready to get dirty with the topic because we're going to dig into the science of being human, what it is to be human, why we are the way we are, and what are we going to be next? Are we going to be something different? What's the next step in evolution? All this and much more, I'm sure, will be covered in this hour of the show. Thank you so much for joining me today I'd like to welcome Dr. Mark Cengizzi to the show. He is, according to his website, cengizzi.com, he's an evolutionary neurobiologist aiming to grasp the ultimate foundations underlying why we think, feel, and see as we do. His research focuses on why questions, and he's made it important has made important discoveries such as why we see in color why we see illusions, why we have forward facing eyes, why letters are shaped the way that they are and why the brain is organized as it is. He attended the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology and then went on to the University of Virginia for a degree in physics and mathematics and to the University of Maryland for a PhD in math. In 2002, he won the prestigious Sloan-Schwartz Fellowship in Theoretical Neurobiology at Caltech. And in 2007, he became an assistant professor in the Department of Cognitive Science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. In 2010, he took po- took the post of Director of Human Cognition at a new research institute called 2AI Labs. He's got multiple scientific journals out there. And he's also written many articles for popular audiences as well in, in places such as Newsweek, Wired, Seed Magazine. He's also written three books, The Brain from 25,000 Feet, The Vision Revolution, uh, which we, I interviewed him previously on This Week in Science for, and now Harnessed, How Language and Music Mimicked Nature and Transformed Ape to men, Ape to Man. And he's also working on another book Making faces what our emotional expressions say and how they say it, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me uh glad to be here yeah it's great. I'm glad that you could fit us in um you know in in to your busy schedule you're you're working on so many books and writing so much um, How do you get it all in uh
1: it's it's really, <laughs> I have a lot of free time. I play with kids and it, it, it's uh, it's not as much as it might seem uh but um, it, it just you know, just every three, three or four years, I hope to write another book if I've got any more ideas. But uh, uh, this, this, I don't want to suggest that there's very much there.
0: <laughs> what is it that in that inspires you? You're the ideas that inspire the idea for one of your books, or uh, just the ideas that you that uh, that you that get you thinking on a daily basis.
1: Well, you know, as you said, I'm I'm interested more in the why uh, than the how. And it, it, for me, it's, I'm always more excited about uh, what it is that drove us to have the kinds of functionality that we have um, at all um, and less interested in, in, in the specific mechanisms that uh, we have. Um, and so I'm often interested in uh, uh, what is it that our brains are doing or why do we see the way we do and what are the evolutionary selection pressures? Um, how does that kind of power that we have fit into the environment? And in the process of understanding the environment and the kind of perception or the kind of shape um, that we are, one can hopefully explain why we're shaped or function the way we do. Uh, and how I come up with these ideas is, 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 is typically just utter chance and digging in crazy spots. Um, one of the things that I often, I'm writing about is, is, I often summarize it by the word aloof. Um, and I have a, another book in a long range feature that I've written many pieces for called uh, aloof, um, how not giving a damn maxim- maximizes your creativity. And it's nice. and uh, there's really no, you know, uh, when you have graduate students, undergraduates, it's, it's easy to teach them how to analyze data. It's easy to teach them how to figure out whether your data fits some hypothesis versus some other hypothesis. But where do you get the big hypotheses in the first place? And there's I have no big insights other than just keep on digging in lots of crazy spots. And then just, if you dig a hundred times, um, you might just get lucky and find something else, uh, find something that's of interest. And a lot of people, and I, and I go to great efforts to try to, you know, some of the things that prevent you from digging in lots of different spots are that you become too wedded to a community. If you go to your, you know, if you, when, when you start going to con, so I've always said, I don't go to conferences. Um, and the reason I don't go to conferences is because I'm a social person like everybody else. You go to conferences, You get to know everybody there, Uh, you like them, they like you, you know the big leagues in that field and you want to solve the problems that they respect. The younger people, you can tell that they start to respect you as you get to be a little bit older. The girls might bat their eyes and the boys are wanting to become like you. And all of these things affect you as a person. You want to be part of that community and become respected in that community. And soon problems outside of that conference community, um, you'll make fun of those problems. Oh, those are silly problems of that other uh, community does that. That's just stupid, and so you won't be feel free to move to these other areas, and you won't even realize that you've constrained yourself because it feels like the full universe to you. Your whole social and intellectual space has uh, has you know just like people draw uh, maps of New York City, and it encompasses all of the Earth, and then on the extremities of New York City, they show the rest of the Earth. That's what happens intellectually to you if you become too wedded to your community. Um, it all of the space of your mind is filled by that community's thoughts and the rest of the universe is tiny. Uh, so that's just one of many kinds of steps that I've I've tried to prevent myself from becoming too attached to anything. So to allow myself to have the freedom to cut new theoretical ideas, which are really hard if you're constrained in that way.
0: Do you find that you're inspired a lot by just conversations that you might have with somebody, you know, at a, at a, at a bar or with one of your friends over dinner or even with one of your kids?
1: Well. Yeah, I, I, sometimes it's hard to, on retrospect to, to always figure out where the idea came from and who you stole it from.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, where did that
1: idea know, come from? <laughs> uh, you want to forget those cases where you stole it so you can have plausible deniability. No, um, No. It, it, what, more recently, uh, my daughter had got me, she, had, she kept asking me, why do we cry, Daddy, um, when, when we're sad? That is, why do tears physically fall out of our eyes? And, mm-hmm. and I had no real answer for it. Um, We went through lots of, and I've written a piece, you know, sort of eight really, really bad ideas for why water comes out of our eyes when we tear, that kind of piece. And she had an interesting idea, um, and it was was that when water falls on your face, um, you yourself, the the crier, can feel your emotions potentially better. Uh, So maybe it provides a sense a a first-person sense or feedback as to how much you've cried. The more you cry, the wetter your face feels, you know, that when water is evaporating off you, it's really a sensitive feeling that you have. I don't know if I I actually believe it, but it was a genuinely uh, new way of of thinking about, I I thought, the problem, rather than it being typically, imagine the tears on your face are somehow attracting or or signaling to the others around you, but the idea that it was a feedback for yourself. And, in fact, that idea motivated other related ideas um, for the suite of facial expressions that we have, and why our faces shape the way it is, um, and so this is the, the book that's on the horizon after this this, this book harness that's coming up about music and speech, um, called Making Faces, or tentatively titled Making Faces. And it's, you can't make faces and expressions if you can't have the same kind of visual feedback that you have when you reach, you know, when you reach out to the world. All the complicated tasks that you do, whether it's moving or reaching. You get visual motor feedback. You get visual feedback right. about what you're doing. Now, right. when, you're, when you're walking, you can't see your body walking, but you get the optic flow changes. Um, one of the only things that you do that's really complicated motor behavior where you can't see it is your tongue. But your tongue is sitting inside a whole, like a pouch of skin, all of the, you know, your, all the other sensory things in your mouth. that always knows where it is even without being able to see it. Now, your facial expressions, the trick with building a face is... Putting eyes on a face that is expressing such that the eyes can not only see out in the world, but see the very face that's expressing such that each distinct expression that you're giving has unique uh, visual aspects within your visual field. So you need to be able to see your own face. In fact, right now, in order to talk to you, I have on my screen, on the Skype screen, feed visual feedback of me, right? Yep. yep. And so I need that. Otherwise, I'd end up off screen really soon because I just wouldn't know where the camera is. You need that as well to get the fine-grained, you know, thousand different kinds of smiles that we can give. How do you do that though, when you can't walk around with a screen or a mirror? But you've got the only way you can do that is put eyes in the very, in the very screen itself. And so, part of this next book is about um, how the face is designed itself to allow that kind of first-person feedback. And there's a whole half of a book that's that's sort of emanating from these thoughts that my daughter um, had had gotten me onto. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. Um, when I um, I've recently had a child, and I was reading, you know, uh, different stuff about child development and um, what stimuli get kids doing things like smiling and making different facial expressions, and I actually came across some information suggesting suggesting that there is a, uh, a stimulus that uh, of sticking out the tongue. So if a child, a little baby sees somebody stick out their tongue, that stimulus will, will spark a whole world of uh, exploring facial emotions, because that child will start learning about sticking their tongue out. And that from there, it'll lead to a smile, it'll lead to, to all sorts of things. And so that there's this necessary stimulus of sticking the tongue out to actually get kids making faces
1: yeah that would be it's uh, it, it's course kind of strange that there would be a a releaser yeah. you have to yeah. be making fun of your child by they sticking your tongue out tongue out in order for you to get them development on track that's the kind of thing you like to see yeah
0: exactly uh, and so i spent <laughs> i spent a a good a good couple of weeks early on sticking my tongue out at my baby and he smiled and of course <laughs> i i you know <laughs> confirmation bias it worked right right. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly um so let's talk a little bit about uh your your more recent book harnessed and um i was taking a look at your seed article that is really fascinating and it, it has a lot to do with um uh, the ideas that you're bringing up in harnessed as well um your seed article in seed magazine is uh, kind of about humans version 3.0 and um It feels to me like a lot of what you're you talk about in this is kind of it's 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 different from what futurists like Ray Kurzweil and other technologists, uh, the way that they see human evolution going. So how are humans evolving and what are what are the things that are going to get us there? It seems like you're taking a different a different attack on it.
1: Right, yeah, it actually motivated my I'm, – I'm making my first attempt at fiction actually now. It's It's something along it, – you know, it's motivated as a kind of anti-sci-fi, uh, futuristic kind of uh, fiction story, but it's, it, it's not the kind of thing that uh, most people uh, uh, think that's, that's going to happen. So the standard sci-fi, um, uh, futuristic, uh, involves radical <sighs> – Radical changes to us and radical ways of of doing better than us in some sense. So on the one hand, there might be genetically engineered creatures who are far superior to us. Um, Or uh, you have uh, brain implants that are uh, enhancing our, our, you know, doing much more than what our current brains are doing. Mm -hmm. Or you have artificial intelligence that you've actually built that's doing uh, things uh, better than what we're doing um or you've built um these you know like the blue brain project was is big in the news in the last couple of days again uh, and and here you're you're hoping to train up a brain it may not be artificial intelligence per se but it's you know, you're mimicking the brain and trying to so it's always about going beyond the human capacity and the way that uh, i think that, that that's all wrong and the way to think about the brain and where we're going is 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 like magic that is the way that magic is treated And fantasy. So in fantasy movies, the fantasy genre, you have magic. And there's only a small finite resource of magic that exists for whatever reason. This is just the way it always works. And the only way to defeat magic is typically by other magic. You might be able to shoot bullets at the wizard for a while, but ultimately it's going to be someone else who's tapping in or harnessing that magic in potentially new ways to defeat the other bad wizard. And you want to tre- cherish that magic. And they always do. They hide it in some back room of some fancy cathedral where it's, it's kept and, and it's sacred and studied and so forth. And that's, that's I think, a much better metaphor um, for uh, what, where we're going and what makes us who we are today is that we've, the magic um, here is the uh, 100 million or 500 million years of evolution that gave us the brains that we have. And these brains are, when they're doing what they were designed to do, um, the brilliance at which they do them is incalculable. Um, that is, we—it's—it's it's like magic. We're so good at them. And of course, the things that we're so good at are, exact, are exactly the things that we have no appreciation for, because they're the stuff that we do every day with no effort at all. It feels like no effort at all, um, but in fact, these things are, are are fantastically complicated, and we have no idea, and are unlikely to have any idea how they work as well as they do uh, for, millennia in, in my, for millennia, in my millennia, in my opinion. Um, we're not on the cusp of, of figuring out all of these things uh, because we have no idea even the set of things that it is that we do. And I wrote, wrote a piece recently in Forbes called um, the, What We Need After the Genome is the Teleome," And, that, and right. that has nothing to do with telium here. It has to do with teleology. That is, you need to figure out the set of things that, the f- set of functions or the set of powers that animals are in fact capable of. Um, and, we have no idea what those powers are and they're, it's gonna be a massive set of, of things or functions we can do. If you don't know what those set of functions are, then you can't build a machine that mimics it, right? Um, right. You, you don't even know what to build. It, it, it's, um, so that's the way to think about, so the question is how did we get to be as smart as we are today? Effectively, we're homo sapiens, but we're much more than that. If you, if you went back probably to the first uh, genetically, uh, essentially um, homo sapiens, they uh, certainly didn't write or read um, they may well have not had music, and I argue um, that they may not have been had speech either. Um, and that what makes us humans today fun- genetically identical to them, but fundamentally a new kind of thing, having uh, uh, writing speech and and music and the other kinds of arts that we have, is uh, is a kind of evolution, but it's a cultural evolution. And it's one that, where culture itself, once you had once we had enough social socialness, we were a sufficiently social creature that was able to create stuff that could then evolve from generation to generation into, into new kinds of um, artifacts we were able a new kind of uh, a new kind of uh, uh, blind mo- a new kind of blind watchmaker uh, was born and that's much faster than natural selection so in this case mm-hmm. we know for example the story here starts off uh, not uh, evolutionarily but it starts off how is it that we can come to, to read as well as we do reread So well that aliens that would look down upon us, not looking down upon us, looking at us from space, um, when they see how much (laughs) we read, uh, they would look probably down on us because if they get here, they're much superior to us.
0: Much Uh, advanced, yeah.
1: They would, you know, all day long. We're reading. We're reading much more than we're listening, to and so it would seem as if we're designed uh, to read. Kids can read at a ridiculously early age with very little training. Um, they're often reading before they're able to hang from the monkey bars or do great somersaults, and often they're reading um, before you're letting them pour milk into their own cereal, um, or that you trust them to pour milk into their own cereal. And of course, we know we didn't evolve to read um, because. It's only, it was only invented several thousand years ago. And if you just go back one or two generations in your own family lineages, you'll find them, that probably two or three generations back, they weren't reading at all. So we know we didn't evolve to read, but we, yet we seem to have brains for reading. And the only way that that probably can be the case is that reading has culturally evolved to fit us, not the other way around. The brains aren't shaped for reading. Reading shaped itself for the brain. This is part of the vision revolution, but it's the fourth chapter of vision revolution. And there's how did we come to be readers? It's because the shapes of letters themselves over time, the shapes of words have shaped themselves to look like, words have come to look like objects out in the natural world, and letters in particular have come to look like sub-objects, the object parts, like these junctions. And in this way, it turned a visual object recognition system that's brilliant, that's magical, in it's power. I mean, it's the best metaphor to have, and uh, turned it into a reading system. And so the, when you can harness the brain, when you can shift, when you can come up with new things that you want humans to do, that we didn't evolve to do, and you can morph those things into things that we did evolve to do, that's when you hit the sweet spot of human capability and suddenly, we're you know you can make you can make humans a thousand times better at whatever they're doing. And suddenly, they become utterly brilliant, like magic machines, able to do the stuff that it would be like the difference between us reading right now and us trying to read barcodes uh, or something mm-hmm. like, or, or or you know listening to speech. uh, versus listening to fax machine sounds. And so that's the idea. uh, The same story holds for, uh, I'll skip over the actual story for speech and for music, just to to stick within this human 3.0 in the the long-term future. The idea is that culture has shaped these things good for our brains and, and hitting these sweet spots for our powers. That's how we got to be the humans we are today which are already kind of like a singularity, as Kurzweil talks, we're already massively, you know, incredibly different kinds of creatures than our, our genetically identical ancestors. And I see no reason to, to, to think that the the fundamental transformative revolutionary changes that we'll, we'll undergo to be some human 3.0, they has, we're human 2.0 now, some future human 3.0 that has utterly amazing new magical powers that we can hardly comprehend. But those magical powers won't be due to the fact that some human has engineered the genome better or understood the brain better and and, and figured it all out. It'll just be taking these new powers that we need to do and converting them into powers that our ancient magical brains um, are able to, to carry out brilliantly. That's where I think the future is.
0: Yeah. So, so culturally, there was uh, the advancement of technology uh, that allowed us. You know, at, at first, it was carving shapes into stone. Um, you know, that were that were these uh, symbols that we used to read. And now we had, and then we moved into the printing press. Now we have computers. Um, now we have the internet. Um, looking at where we are currently, technologically um, and culturally. Um, social networking is a huge force. It's something that, you know, we are social creatures naturally, so it's not outside our our brain's ability to do, but people talk about it as if it's this entirely new trait of humankind. Um, where do you, is there anything that you see in what we're using currently and what we're doing currently technologically that would give you um, you know some kind of insight into directions that we might be going with this human 3.0 like where where the next big big evolution well, might be happening i mean
1: uh, yeah i'm kind of this fiction book of course is in some sense puts the onus on me to come up with some fantasy story about where it's going uh, yep. it let me i can mention any actual attempt to do this i think just sounds hokey even if even at the beginning of of writing if someone had made this kind of argument you know writing no one would have thought back then at the beginning it was just being used by clerics or or for accountants and things like this and the idea that it would have been a fundamentally transformative human invention at the time i think would have sounded crazy so i think playing that kind of futuristic game in a in a and trying to be realistic about it it's just makes people look silly it's one thing to look silly in fiction it's so i thing to do it outside right. of fiction but right. uh, I, I also wrote another seed uh, article i mean enough that gets at this this is sort of uh, touching upon um uh, Jaron Lanier's book, um, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, I'm having a mental block of, uh, uh, I'm not a heart um, or something, uh, uh, I can't remember the terminology right now. Um, and, you know, he's arguing, and I, I tend to agree with this perspective, that it's another part of this anti-sci-fi or that, that it's magic that's going to take us to the fourth that understanding the magic of the ancient human brain that's really the, still going to be the foundation of all of our future developments is, uh, that is in addition to, so, Futurists will talk about not only the genome changing and AI and and, and breaking through the brain and understanding, but but the other one is is that we're going to be we're going that the social networks like Twitter is going to suddenly become conscious, right? I mean, and, and so that somehow the power of these social networks creates some sort of new uh, super consciousness that floats out above us all. Uh, so this is uh, the general. I forgot to mention this earlier and. The, the counter argument, so this is, this is a, one, a case not of how we're going to go for it, but how we're not going to go for it, I think. It's yet another case. And, there, and much of the reason for this is because uh, in order to, this is a misunderstanding often of, of what makes intelligent things intelligent. There's lots of things that are complex in the world. Um, if I uh, pour a little bit of milk into my coffee and I mix it up, and during those first few moments you get this massive complexity but that doesn't mean it does anything it's not doesn't mean that it's been selected to function and carry out stuff you know do stuff Um, you only get function that function that you know does stuff when there's strong selection pressure of one kind You, you can either be an actual designer or it can be a learner or it can be natural selection that's designing via this this the blind watchmaker mechanism, or it could be cultural selection, but there has to be selection. There has to be design. And in this case, whatever is social networks are being selected for, uh, it ain't to be, to carry out intelligent functions. It's it's being selected to allow, I'm not exactly sure what it's being selected for, but it's something along the lines of, of quick communication with one another, allowing, you know, uh, groups of people to interact, allowing maybe integration with in the marketplace and or, you know, things along these lines that there's, there's, uh, n- if you imagine that there are many social networks simultaneously out there and you were select you know the, some of them were dying off to the extent that they weren't smart enough to play chess against other social networks then you could imagine that in sufficient periods of time um, you know Twitter number seven uh, would become smart and all the other Twitters would have disappeared because they aren't <laughs> they're not able to play chess well enough or be smart but nothing like that's going on so you know you don't just get pour lots of people together into a pot and expect smart things to come out
0: I think I think that's a that's a pretty good, pretty good assessment. You, you can't pour things into a, into a pot and expect smartness to come out. Um, there is a, in, in your book, Harnessed, you talk about nature harnessing. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, the cultural aspects of evolution driving, um, uh, or, or cultural adaptation, maybe driving, uh, how we progress and how we change from our genetically identical ancestors to where we are now to where we will be in the future. But you bring in this nature harnessing. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what that is and um, and how that plays into to what we're discussing?
1: So on the on the, vision, on the writing and reading side, uh, uh, um, the idea is that that uh, so the idea that culture might shape itself so that artifacts are good for our brain is an old idea, uh, but coming up with a specific mechanism or specific strategy that culture utilizes to get these artifacts into our brain um, is really what I'm describing when I say nature harnessing. So in the case of writing, the strategy um, was to shape letters and, and words so that they look like natural scenes. And in particular, they look like uh, if you just have opaque objects strewn about in three-dimensional space, you get certain kinds of patterns in terms of how contours, contours interact with one another. You can work out those patterns and then you can just ask across human writing systems, do you find the same kinds of patterns for how strokes interact with one another? Um, and of course, when people are writing, um, there's no need for them to have these same kind of structures that you find in three-dimensional scenes with opaque objects. Um, the reason that they're like this is because the, the the eyes like to see that kind of thing. The eyes evolved to see that sort of thing, so that's what I mean by nature harnessing. That is, culture is is shaping the artifacts like nature, and that's mm-hmm. one of the best tricks it can use to get these artifacts to be soaked right up into these ancient, um, in this case, illiterate uh, visual system. So, and so this new book though is 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 about the similar idea, but for speech and for music, and sort of music mm-hmm. being uh, one of the examples of, of the best examples of the arts, and so for speech. And it's much more controversial here because a lot of people believe, and I certainly used to believe, uh, that, that we probably had uh, uh, language instincts. Uh, uh, um, and uh, Pinker... Like Stephen
0: like Pinker has suggested.
1: Right. And, and he gives great... I, th- I think his arguments that there has been strong selection pressure um, for the fitting of our brain and language. Um, that is, I think his arguments are very strong that there's been selection pressure so that our brain is well-fit for language. Now, of course, I'm going to argue now and I used to think that was probably because the brain has been shaped for language. But now I, I'm I'm going to suggest that the sounds of speech, in fact, have culturally evolved over time to sound just like the kinds of things that our auditory system would be expected to be good at um, in any mammalian um, uh, auditory system, and, and potentially bird and others, um, to be good mm-hmm. at. Um, and and so the most just like the most fundamental way of describing visual scenes is with just opaque objects strewn about. It's not, when I say that letters look like nature, it's not some very specific aspect of the Serengeti. Um, for the auditory domain, the fundamental events that occur around us, that our auditory system needs to sense, um, mostly, not entirely, but mostly is, consists of just solid objects. And they hit each other or they slide against one another. And whenever they hit or they slide against one another, the objects periodically vibrate, they ring. And so the very first observation that you can make about Solid object physical events is that they're primarily composed of hits, slides, and rings. And when you start asking what are the fundamental phonemes that you find across all humankind, well, they come in those three kinds as well. They come in plosives, which sound like p, k, c- t, they sound mm-hmm. like hits. In fact, they have the actual mm-hmm. structure of what a hit sounds like. Uh, and then you have fricatives, which sound like slides z, f, sh. Things like this, and then you've got the sonorants, the vowels, and also the sonorant consonants like y and r and l and and um, w. Things like this. These sound like rings. So that's just the first coincidental similarity between the fundamental atoms of solid object physical events, the most fundamental kind of sound around you, um, and the fundamental atoms of human speech. And so what I do in the book is I say, let's start asking how do these, what other kinds of structures, or what, what's the what's the grammar of how, of what solid object physical events sound like? And you can start working out. You say, yeah, solid object physical events, they typically start with hits, but then will be, there's always a hitch in a ring or a slide in a ring, and that's the syllables. So you can start working out in lots of, in, in, num- in case after case that these are the kinds of patterns that you expect amongst solid object physical events. And you can work out kind of a grammar. And then you can ask, okay, now that we understand the grammar of solid object physical events, do you find that kind of Grammar or pattern or structure in the sounds, in the way phonemes combine with one another in words across humankind. And so, in our data sets from 18 widely diverse languages, we find that these kinds of structures that you find among solid object physical events are found in the structures of speech. So, the idea is that languages, the sounds of the speech that we throw at one another sound like just objects hitting and, 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 and sliding and making the kinds of sounds that happen in the natural environment that's how we're so good at soaking these things up so quickly that's the case for speech but music is a, is a different story
0: yeah so uh, there, could there also be an argument made that um you know speech and music tie in together that that sounds that that we make um i mean looking neurologically our uh, our, our speech production system has much in common with the bird song system. So, um, you know, these are, these are, and bird song has often been, um, you know, it, it's said to be very musical and indeed it is, you know, there's a, there are, there's rhythm and melody um, to bird song. And that's very true of human speech and language as well. And if you look at, um you know speeches, or the the great speakers in the world, they seem to speak in um, you know in major chords. <laughs> so they're, the 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 vocal tones that they use actually are are very are are melodic as well as and they they use um, melody and uh, and volume and power to be able to um, bring things to. Uh, a peak in speeches and, and to get people to respond. Um, yeah. You know, do you, how, how do you, do you think about it in that way at all? No. Well,
1: so I, I don't, I, I agree that there are certainly uh, speakers who incorporate aspects of, of uh, music in, in certain, in some of these kinds of speak uh, speeches, um, but I would consider them distinct uh, phenomena. I don't, uh, I don't think that birds, I, I'm, I'm, I've never been convinced that birdsong has any other than some really cursory uh, uh, similarities and a little bit of melodic aspects to it. Um, there's very little similar to actual anything that we would call music. Um, very rarely do you find a kind of beat. Very rarely um, do you find them si- s- sticking to uh, any of the, of the uh, uh, notes that we would um, find in almost any um, musical system of ours. Um, and they're, so from my point of view, speech and music are, 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 are quite different. Um, each <laughs> are harnessing different aspects of our brain. So, one of the what you don't find in speech, except in a highly, um, you know, if you're giving a speech, you may you're doing a performance. It's possible that they're putting in poetry-like um, aspects to it and musical-like aspects. But in normal speech, um, there's no beat. In normal speech, um, you don't find the kinds of things that you find in music. It's an utterly different kinds of of, of sets of things going on. And unlike uh, speech, uh, music is highly evocative. It's emotional. Um, We'd like to listen to it all day long. And whenever I find things as a theorist that are highly evocative in the visual or the auditory arts, my uh, suspicion is that it looks human in some way. Um, So in the case, for example, in the visual domain, um, colors are long known to be highly evocative. People argue over the colors of everything. Uh, if their spouse is having to decide what the color People care about the colors, and the reason that yeah. the colors are evocative in light of my earlier research is color evolved, primate color vision uh, that we have that's above what other mammals have, evolved foreseeing colors on skin of other humans. Colors mm-hmm. intrinsically all about the emotions, which is why color is so emotional in ways that the typical, let's say typical letters, are not particularly emotional. In the same evocative sense now in the auditory domain speech is not particularly emotional and the reason it's not particularly emotional is i claim is because it sounds like solid object physical events which is a very sterile kind of um utilitarian kind of sound but there's another kind of sound that that you can expect that all animals have special mechanisms to deal with and it's the sounds of others of their own kind Uh, the sounds of conspecifics other humans in our case um just as we have face recognition mechanisms we have other human recognition mechanisms but auditory ones that we can hear what people are doing in our midst and again we're not conscious of most of this um Mm -hmm. but we're able to do it people don't sneak up behind you when someone suddenly appears behind you or they suddenly stop when they were walking behind you or all of these things uh trigger things in you you know so you have the capability of sensing the behavior of what whether someone is angry or sad or um or uh, are happy on the basis of their gait. You can tell whether they're headed towards you or away from you, upstairs versus downstairs, how close they are. So basically you're, you're able to, just from the auditory sense, track where they are in space around you and what behavior they're probably engaged in. And this is important because other humans are the most important thing to track. And my claim for music is that music has culturally evolved over time to essentially be a fictional story of a human moving in your midst. It's not the sound of solid object physical events. It's the sounds of humans moving around or moving about. Um, and that's why it's so evocative because a good musical storyteller, so to speak, is going to tell mm-hmm. a story about a human moving your midst that's somewhat evocative. Maybe he's, the evocativeness can come both from the s- sadness of the gate itself or it could be much richer through longer portions of, you know, the, 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 the way they're coming toward you and away from you or around you itself tends to intimate uh, certain kinds of um, interactions that emote certain kinds of feelings. Exactly understanding the full set of these feelings from these complex things, I, I don't have that kind of understanding of it yet. But the trick of, of this research was, like the speech and like the, the writing research, was to work out what are the fundamental patterns or the grammar yeah. of what humans, in fact, sound like. They have particular beats and gait-like patterns, which are on the rhythmic side. There are, pitch, there are pitch modulations that they make as, a, as they move around. And depending on how fast they mm-hmm. turn, that is, the pitch modulations are Doppler related. Now, they're very small Doppler shifts relative to, let's say, cars and airplanes, but they're sense of, you can still detect them with your ear, and music would be an exaggeration of these kinds of things, just like um, Wile eye Coyote and, and Roadrunner show these fast lines, that which are high, big exaggerations here, and smiley faces that anyone draws are radical generalization re- exaggerations of what any human actually does. So Doppler shifts change in a particular way, and you can work that out. You can say, well, yeah, if people typically turn this fast, you can, and, and if it's a, if it's about Doppler shifts, then you can derive what should melodic contours typically look like in music, if they really are Doppler-like for humans moving around. And as people get closer and farther from you, the loudness of them changes, and these interact. That is, the way that when people are close by, sometimes there are pitch modulations, that is, if, when the music is loud, mm-hmm. and thus I'm claiming they're close by, there are sometimes expected uh, consequences for how fast the pitches should be changing and which direction they should be changing. And all of this is in some sense, working out the physics of movers in a two-dimensional world moving around you. I'm not really dealing with people going up and down. I'm presuming they're moving on a flat plane around you. So you work all that out and in each case, then you can ask, do you find this pattern in in music? When you look across music, you find this fundamental structure in music as well. So just to, just to give you an example, uh, uh, you know, if someone, if a slow car is coming toward you No, if it's a fast car that's coming directly towards you and then past you, you know, it goes That is When it's moving away, the the Doppler pitch is low. When it's moving toward you, the Doppler pitch is high. And if it's doing a little dance or some kind of behavior around you, it will have a really high pitch and a really low pitch. It's melody. It's movement melody will cover a big range, right? Um, Now, if it's a really slow bike, though, or a little slow car, it'll be a much tighter melody, um, fitting in a smaller range. It's called a tessitura in music, that range of what the melody is. So, but now there's another side. There's, there's one measure, theoretical measure in music of how fast the fictional mover is, is what the difference is, what the tessitura size is. Um, when it's bigger, it means the, the mover is going faster. And when it's smaller, the mover is going more slowly in, in your midst. But another, predict- another correlate of how fast the, the person is going is just uh, their tempo, the number of beats or the number of footsteps per second. Faster tempo music is also faster music, faster mm-hmm. movers. So it should be the case that faster tempo music better typically have bigger tessitoris, right? Because it's a faster mover. It better be the case that faster music, greater tempo music also has bigger tessitoris, and it does. So this is just one of 40-something, more than 40 kinds of predictions on the basis of these kinds of physical human gait regularities that you can work out. And in each case, you can then look across and in this case, we're looking at a database of 10,000 classical is all from cl- a deep study of classical themes, not because classical mm-hmm. music is any more special, although, of course, I happen to love it. But um, it happens to be that there's a great database to get large numbers of, of melodic themes across classical music. It's just a database that you can't get really for um, non-Western music at this point. Uh, so in the, in the yeah. future, hope is to get a much wider variety of, 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 of data.
0: Yeah, so I think that would be a, a big point is to not just have Western culture, Western music, um, but also to, also to look at uh, Eastern as well because it would be interesting to see if these themes play out globally um, across cultures.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. So the, now the reason, again, part of the reason you need a large data, it's not just that you need a large data, large data set. You also want a data set that has itself undergone selection pressure over a long period of time. Yeah, all of, Pretty much all of those 10,000 classical themes are ones that people still listen to today. I mean, there's another hundred thousand or a million classical themes that no one on the right mind listens to, and were written by people that no one remembers. So it's inherently gone under large selection pressure. Uh, it might be harder, you know, you'd have to, you'd want to do that. That's why classical classical music has existed as a, as an identifiable thing for such a long period of time that you can really be sure that you're getting the evolved melodies, so to speak. Um, rather than the much noisier set if you had pulled out all million of them from which those 10,000 had been pulled. So that's that's sort of the particular reason for aim for, uh, for focusing on that, as well as just that's where there was a lot of data.
0: Yeah, it would also be really interesting to look at more, uh, I guess, more recent music and see uh, see what is uh, reflected in more recent music, um, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe has different themes or, uh, you know, more... I get, yeah, different themes from uh, what we see in classical music.
1: So, for example, uh, all these, these young guys that wear their pants hanging down to their to way below their, <laughs> their butt, <laughs> that probably makes yeah. them walk differently, surely, and so music must reflect yeah. that.
0: <laughs> yeah and and also living in cities and and like you said you you made the example of a car driving past you, so now we have cars we have um city life with completely different sound environments than um you know maybe horse drawn carriages from a hundred years ago or even uh, more rural rural existences uh when populations were not as dense um you know so there there's probably a lot of um just evolution of this whole whole system, that would be uh, that you could see carried out if looking at it at a on a I guess a on a on a time frame.
1: Yeah, definitely. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. You, we might be much more accustomed to, to larger tessitura, for example, than we might have been, you know, a hundred thousand years ago when music was just getting under starting its cultural evolution because there was wasn't very many fast things. I mean, it'd be the occasional bee yeah. that buzzes by and you can hear the you you yeah. hear the dophership really well there, um, but we may not have been as, as uh, comfortable with, with those high levels of um, Tessitura.
0: Yeah, and now hence the evolution of drum and bass and um, other dance music that we have now. Um, mm-hmm. I need to take a moment to thank our sponsor. So Mark, if you just hang on for a second, um, I will, I just need to start reading. This episode of Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is brought to you by Netflix. Netflix delivers movies directly to your home. That saves you time, money and hassle you can instantly watch thousands of tv episodes and movies you can have them stream directly to your pc or your mac it doesn't matter which platform you use or they can be streamed to your television via a netflix ready device including xbox 360s ps3s nintendo wii's roku's boxies all these devices that we have today it's wonderful um you can also get dvds you remember those things those discs little silvery shiny things that now make good uh good mobiles for scaring away crows Uh, yeah you can get dvds in the mail in just about one business day watch as many movies as you want anytime you want there are never any late fees and no due dates one tv series available to watch instantly from netflix for my pick of the week this week kind of fits in with the theme of why people do strange things and uh where are we going to be going? You know, what's wrong with our brains? What's right with our brains? Um, uh, how I guess how do things that are right about our brains go terribly wrong? Is the television series Hoarders? You know, it's what it's like a car accident you just can't look away from. I don't know whether or not it's a great series, but man. Really, the things people people uh, the conditions people allow themselves to live in. So, Hoarders is available on Netflix, and you can you can watch some some really interesting television, thanks to Netflix. Instantly watch this te- television series. You can choose from thousands of others, whatever you like, television episodes or movies. When you register for a free that's right free trial membership, go to Netflix dot com forward wow. slash. Twit. Be sure to sign up for your free trial at Netflix. That's n e t f l i x dot com forward slash Twit. And we thank Netflix for their support of Dr. Kiki's Science Hour and the Twit Network. And back to the show. We're talking with Dr. Mark Changizi. He is the author of Harnessed. Language and music mimicked nature and transformed ape to man. He is an evolutionary neurobiologist, and um, we've been talking a bit about how uh, how about language and music and and how the brain has allowed us to come up with these these adaptations, these things that we take for granted. Um, now we really do take, I mean, at this point in time, we really do take language, reading music all these things for granted i mean you walk you walk out on the street these days and um and just about everybody's got a pair of earbud headphones on um or if you're caring about the health of your ears over ear health headphones um everyone's listening to their music we have um you know so many ways to 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 get this stimulation to enjoy it do you do you think that um that where we are with all of this overabundance of music and what we can hear and what we what we see what we take for granted uh, that do you, do you, do you see our our brains looking at it in any different ways
1: uh. <laughs> Um, somehow that
0: <laughs> it didn't come. That question didn't come out very well. There
1: were like seventy-three <laughs> commas in that question. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: comma, which therefore, nevertheless, yes. Sorry about uh, that. <laughs> I'm like yeah. thinking as I'm asking the question.
1: Well, I mean, just as, as, a, as a general observation, of course, it 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 does force one to you know it. it we're so used to music because we grew up with it that it's um we should be reminded that it's very strange that there's some part of auditory space of all the possible sounds that could be creative created there's some sweet spot tiny little corner where all of music lies you throw that at people and then they just become addicted to it they look they can literally listen to it all day if they could get away with it no one wants to look at uh, beautiful art all day in the same, I mean, the number of pieces of art that people buy or reprints of art that they put on the wall is, you know, I would say a thousand times less than what they're willing to, in terms of voting. How do people vote in terms of their pocketbook? People spend thousands of uh, times more on music than they do on the visual arts. I mean, of course, they spend lots of money on television and movies, which are visual, but they're also auditory, right? I mean, there, there's very yeah. few things that you can point to that they're just going to stare at, at silent uh, 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 visual things. And that's just striking. And what else could it be? You know, what there's. I, I talked a, a bit about some of the structure of human movement or behave, human behavior in the sounds of, of, of music. But there's, there's a, you know three. What, that's one of the hurdles that any theory of music has to that's, has to jump over. But the other three that I point out in the book is that you need to explain uh, why it's so evocative. And in this case, it's evocative because it sounds like people. So that's easy. Um, You need to explain why people dance. Um, Why would it be that not only do people want to listen to it all day long, but with the right kind of music, not all music, but why should there be a sub-brand of music that people can hardly stop themselves from moving to it? And the answer here um, is that it's not that surprising because there's lots of kinds of other human stimuli, whether facial expressions, gestures, and in this case, we have whole body gestures uh, and behaviors, but just heard with your ears rather than your eyes. So it's it's very common to have contagious behaviors. Um, from yawns mm-hmm. to all these other sorts of things. So the idea that the sounds of humans doing stuff could potentially affect you to do the same kind of stuff is not any longer surprising. And the first uh, theory, uh, the first mo- uh, hurdle that I, I argue that it should satisfy is that it should just we should be able to explain why you'd have a brain that's capable of processing um, these funny things called music. There's again infinitely many kinds of things you could throw at auditory sounds you could throw at us. Most of which we don't have a brain to possibly comprehend. Fax machine sounds. Um, well, can just, mm-hmm. there's just—it's an infinite space of stuff. The reason that we have a brain that can handle these things is because we have a brain that can handle the sounds of other humans moving in our midst, and these this stuff uh, hits that uh, space. Um, yeah,
0: and, and not just humans, but also other organisms in that environment. So, um, you know, are you listening for a predator, or um, you know, something that might be attacking you in the jungle or the city that we that you live in? Uh, Today is it? Is it somebody that is going to be sneaking up on you? You made you mentioned uh, the idea that um, you know we're we're very sensitive to these sounds and that uh, you can that we can sense uh, individuals coming up behind us. Um, somebody in the chat room asked the question of this. Um, was wondering with this human recognition specialization. Um, does does this possibly explain why ghosts are always human? The w- human witnessing the ghost is erroneous is erroneously recognizing the sound as being human.
1: Well, that's right. Yeah, I, which would be I presume. I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is true. But when you look at clouds, we're probably more likely to see human faces than other animal faces. Um, although yeah. I certainly recall. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's true. I, typically, when people see um, things in Doritos, too. It's typically looking like people. Uh, I guess it's disproportionate. Like looks like Jesus or Virgin Mary, I suppose, in that case. Um, right. Yeah, so th- and this is actually why in our data, we actually took data from what natural events and the sounds of natural events for speech, and we actually wanted to do it uh, visually. So we're looking at videos determining the kinds of events happening. We didn't want to do it with your ears because we were afraid that any kinds of events that people saw might be heard as speech or the kinds of speech that be- We were afraid that it might be warped by the kinds of uh, human sounds that people are used to. Um, now, I don't want to, solid object, physical event sounds, and people moving sounds, you know, I think are the lion's share of the kinds of, the, mostly in the auditory world, those are the things that, that matter. So, in a speech side, there are all other kinds of things. There's bird songs, there's the sounds mm-hmm. of wind, there's water sounds, and it's certainly possible that music sometimes taps into these. But as a theorist, my goal, my role is to find the largest the smallest core of stuff that can explain the largest amounts of, uh, of, otherwise I can't wrap my head around and make predictions. So right. solid object physical events cert- accounts for, you know, I don't want to, how to, how to put a number on it, but probably 90% or, you know, 99% of all the important events around us and uh, human and, and, you know, humans moving around us is probably disproportionately more important than any other animal. Um, but it, certainly we be, we get very good at understanding um, what your dog is doing in your house. Uh, often you're more conscious of what other animals are doing than you are of other humans. Cause I, I suspect we're less good at what other animals doing and it's more conscious. And so we're able, we're having to think about it more, um, but it does give you some idea about how good you are. Cause if you've had a dog, you kind of you're keeping your eye ears on what the heck is that dog doing? You can tell, yeah. you know, where they are and what they're doing. And so if, if you, if you're that good with what your dog is doing, you can be sure that you're much better at what other humans in your house are doing.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, I, uh, I had a, uh, it's not an experience I had, but uh, a friend of mine had an experience where he went to a, uh, a I guess, an avant-garde music performance. And for the performance, they uh, the audience was ushered into the theater, um, and then all the lights in the house went off. And... The lights, the lights were off for the duration of the performance. And he said, during the performance, he heard, you know, the, the strings of violin, violins being plucked. He heard um, what sounded like the, the, the drips or the, the drops of some kind of, of something onto, onto drums. He heard all these sounds that melded together into this amazing symphony. And then the house lights came up, and there was no orchestra. There was mm-hmm. nobody there. And so it was this whole um, experiment of, you know, what does your, what does your mind make up when mm-hmm. you are in a situation and you expect something? And mm-hmm. in that situation, he heard music. I mean, albeit it was, you know, pretty avant-garde um, music, but that's what, he, that's what he, you know, says that he heard.
1: Well, wait, so you mean they weren't, he heard that because they were piping in music, weren't they? No,
0: it's there was no... There, it was the sound, it was just the sounds of the theater.
1: Oh, I mean, it was dark, literally just dark white dark. noise. There was just white noise there, you're saying, potentially, I mean, just the sounds of just the ambient white noise.
0: Just and the ambient pro- environment, yeah. Other people, people in the pro- audience, like uh-huh. there was no orchestra, there was no projected uh-huh. sound. And it was, um, and he said that he, he heard what what he thought was an orchestra and there was no, no nobody there.
1: Interesting, well, there's these, you know, if you if you just throw up random white noise, and you ask people what they see, and you yeah. do this thousands and thousands of times, um, you can often, you know, how does this, this procedure work? Um, you can often get some kind of generic picture of what people, roughly speaking, the average. it's like the average tendency for the face that people would see in clouds. So if you just do this mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of times, you can sort of, um, you can get, get a good impression of what, so people are likely in, in fast presented white noise, are uh, of the right kind, likely to see faces in there. Yeah, so this is this is interesting. Just in the app, I find it a little hard to believe. Like, <laughs> it does sound implausible? Doesn't it? it? seems like there had to be it something sounds... else they set up that if if you had a lot of white noise, it would help. But if it was yeah. just absolutely quiet, it seems like we would just hear crickets, or you know, yeah. or not even hear crickets. Yeah, it's an
0: anecdote, but, so it's not it's not something that was a you know a scientific controlled right. experiment. It's an anecdote, and so there's you know there's probably some amount of, there might be some amount of exaggeration in the telling or there, you know, there could be any number of things that could have happened behind the scenes that I'm not aware of. Yeah. But I think I, I found it, I, I found it an interesting story um, for, you know, our perceptions and what our brain kind of fills in. Um, Tell me a little bit about 2AI. I've been to the 2AI website and the, the description is fascinating.
1: Well, I mean, so is it, it's, that it's, we're not trying, in some sense, you know, I've been writing a lot of pieces like this, this, the seed piece and some other pieces about why the Kurzweil and Blue Brain and, and these other kinds of futuristic ideas are not what's going to happen. And, and so in some sense, we take ourselves, my colleague, uh, Tim Tim Barber there, uh, and I, um, he's, I'm director of human cognition, Woo! and he's director of machine <laughs> cognition. And uh it, we're, we'd like to be a kind of Kurzweil-like institute, but we're really trying to remain small, but with a very different, more humanistic, and and the way I would describe it, um, mm-hmm. impression for where things are going to go in the future and how you can how what what kind of philosophy you need to have in order to understand the brain and biology and what kind of philosophy you need to have in order to build AI, uh, and it's radically different kind of philosophy than than what much of the neuroscience community I think uh, has today. Um, and, and much of the AI community um, has today. So um, mm-hmm. that's really where. Otherwise, you know, I'm still doing the same kind of research that I was doing, and um, and, and my colleagues um, are doing a little bit more on a little more on the AI side. I come out of computer science math background too, but I tend to be more on the the kinds of things we're talking about is what I, st- I still tend to focus on. So yeah, we'll we'll see. It's an, it's a bit of an experiment starting this institute.
0: Yeah, I love the uh, the idea for the product development that you have on the on the main page for 2ai.org for poker eyewear company so that uh, players will have a technological advantage, uh, that allowing them to see the emotions that they wouldn't necessarily be able to pick up or um, moods and health on the on the faces of other players, possibly
1: recognize that guy. Um, so uh, that's our low attempt at, at artwork there. Yeah, much more generally, the, the idea is this discovery um, of mine some years ago on what color vision is for, and that it's that your cones in primates are optimized for sensing the hemoglobin modulations in the skin. So it's these hemoglobin, it's modulations to the blood in your skin that account for why you get red versus green and bluer and yellower in in the color signals that humans give off. Once you understand that, and once you understand how it is that our cones are optimized for that, it turns out that you can do better. You can build eyewear that allows you to see um, oxygenated versus deoxygenated skin, even better than our eyes do. You can build mm-hmm. eyewear that uh, allows you to focus just on you. You get rid of that uh, oxygenated sig- oxygenated signal, and you can see just how much blood is under the skin. And you know, you put these things on, and you become kind of gross, actually, because all these little modulations that, like you know, acne and all these things, become extremely exaggerated. You can have other eyewear that blocks these signals altogether, and it's effectively you put these over luminance. And the idea is that now you're in an environment where effectively everybody's wearing makeup, uh, makeup that's not looking that matte way that when you put a uh, base on, that, um, mm-hmm. but it, it keeps the nice normal texture, but it's covering all the the modulations that occur due to concentration of blood uh, under the skin. So, some, so one can design better illuminance and better eyewear um, you know, the eyewear could be useful for TSA agents trying to, to have better senses of the kinds of uh, – even better than uh, those around you, the ability to sense what, what's going on in the, the emo- uh, faces of others around and the emotions. And you could also imagine for um, health health um, doctors and, and, and clinical uh, clinical staff, but also for dating and for poker. Uh, yeah. And for the for the illuminants, you can imagine whole environment's flooded in light that's like this, either preventing you from these, seeing these things if you want to sort of – Television have a little bit more studios. Privacy. That's right, television studios. Now they, can, they don't have to wear all that makeup, they could just be putting these on. Now for television studios, it's not quite true. Once you pipe yeah. these things into a camera and you come out the other side, all hell breaks loose because it's no longer the cones of, of eyes that are involved. Mm. There's this right. intermediary of the camera cones. The camera cones lose a lot of the signal in the first place. So it's actually, um, these things have to be analog right to the eye. Yeah. That's so that's, a, that,
0: yeah. I think it's, it's a fascinating idea, and um, I'm sure that there will be a lot of poker players who'll be looking for these, either as eyewear or contact lenses so that other players won't know that they're wearing them.
1: <laughs> that's right, yeah. Hopefully exactly.
0: soon. <laughs> uh, well, we're coming to the end of the hour and um, I, I just, the the stuff that you're focused on and, the, and that you get to think about all the time, I just think is absolutely fascinating and I'm really looking forward to taking a look at reading this book, Harnessed. Um, I really enjoyed The Vision Revolution when it came out and so I'm I'm really interested having um, having worked in uh, bird memory, not in bird song myself, but being around bird song people, um, you know, Word song language all this stuff really I, I find really fascinating and I'm you know interested to hear what you have to say about it and um, I'm gonna keep an eye out um, is there anything else any place that people should keep an eye out for you and things that you're doing in the near future
1: uh, well I mean they could you know I all the, I do a lot of writing and then I list them all at my Chang'Z.com site and and also, yeah, I have a WordPress.com that sort of lists the, the current places I'm writing for Forbes and Wired and, and Psychology Today. And, you know, I typically am linking to these kinds of things. And uh, so they can always, you know, there's not very many Changeezys in the world, so I'm easy to find.
0: <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> and you have a Twitter account, so people can follow you on Twitter?
1: That's true. That's true. I, I think I'm just Mark Changeezy with no underscores.
0: All right. <laughs> so if you're interested in what Mark is doing, please check out... Changizi.com, mark Changizi, at or i guess at the little at sign on twitter um and keep an eye out for for the things that he's doing one of his one of the products coming out of two ai labs or stuff coming out of two ai labs i i i, I think it's just fascinating because we hear so much um, about kurzweil's ideas and the way that a lot of uh, as you said what pretty much all of neuroscience, the, uh, the institution currently, the way that it is thinking about um, artificial intelligence and brain interfaces and, and the way that uh, research is going, there need to be some different perspectives in there. So I'm looking forward to hearing much more from, from you guys at 2AI and uh, get some new ideas out in the field. Thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: You're welcome. And everybody out there, you're, uh, you know, always welcome to Listen to past episodes of Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. They're available at twit.tv forward slash Kiki K I K I. You can find me online if you just search for Dr. Kiki. I'm out there in the Google the Google sphere. And next week we're going to be talking about radio telescope arrays. We're moving away from this futuristic brainy talk that we've been uh, been discussing humanist kind of stuff for the last couple of weeks, and going to be looking at into uh, outer space. So I'm gonna be speaking with Joseph Lazio from NASA's JPL. we are talking about radio telescope arrays if you're interested in that stuff. Um, I think that's about it. Check out Mark's website, chengizzi.com for more information on stuff that he's up to and books that are available. Harnessed is available now, right Mark?
1: Or uh, soon? For pre-order, it's pre-orderable pre-order. right now. Comes out in
0: August comes out in august okay so keep your eyes out for harnessed by mark Changizi. and next week i'll be back i'll see you i hope that you do return thanks very much for tuning into my science hour all i ask is one hour a week and remember one hour a week makes your world a whole lot more interesting thanks a lot